Hi, I'm Adam Murray. Subtle Disruptors is about pondering two questions. What does it mean to live well in this moment, given the context within which we find ourselves? And how can we shape the world we live in so that it becomes closer to the one we want to inhabit? I do this by talking with people who you probably haven't heard of, but who I think are embodying a fascinating response to these two questions and doing it in a way that involves subtle changes all of us can make. I want you and I to get as much as possible out of these stories and to feel encouraged, connected and resolute in our own quests of subtle disruption. So how do we create communities, environments? How do we give rights to non-humans and trees and waterways? And how do we recreate habitats that have been decimated? I find there's something really significant about a place and... I often find myself wondering what makes me feel connected to a place. I find myself going back to the footy ovals where I used to play footy and the houses where I used to live. I suppose this is quite pertinent for me at the moment in that I have lived in a couple of different houses over the past few years and don't have that real sense of connection to a particular home. It's something I want to create in my life. I also love travelling around cities and in the time that I've spent in New York and Paris... I've often wondered, what makes this place great? What makes it tick? What makes it such a vibrant place where people come together, where ideas are shared, where people are uplifted? Is it the parks? Is it the design? Is it the shops? Is it the weather? Like, what actually is it about this place? I'm fortunate enough to live in Melbourne, which is now one of the great cities of the world, one of the most livable cities in the world, and has its, its fair share of amazing places, everywhere from great sporting places to parks and streets and alleyways and bars. It really is an amazing city. My guest for this week has been a big part of making Melbourne the amazing city that it is today. It's someone who I've admired from a distance for a long time and I feel very honoured and grateful for the opportunity to be able to speak with him at length about the story of taking Melbourne from being a place where no one wanted to live and was one of the world's most unlivable cities to today where it often tops the list of livable cities. While we also talked about the journey to get to this point, we also started to explore what new story is emerging for this city, a story that reaches back and draws upon the wisdom of the original placemakers of this country and of this area. Thanks for joining me. I'm Adam Murray, and I hope you enjoy listening to Gilbert Rochecourt on the subtle disruption of Melbourne. Gilbert, so great to be sitting with you here having this conversation. For me, this has been something that's, I guess, about 15 years in the making in many ways. Yeah, but I can get into that in a little bit. But yeah, welcome. Thank you so much. Yeah. Good to be here. Yeah. yeah great. But I usually what I ask is, where are we having this conversation and what's the significance of this place? Well, this is a significant place um, because we're on significant country of the Wurundjeri. And we're next to the Yarra, which is a very sacred river, yeah. literally only a couple hundred metres away across the Fred Square car park. And for us, being very Melbourne-centric, we're very, you know, and placemakers setting up this office called Place Lab that is about, you know, creating a place for fellow travellers and fellow placemakers. So we're a collection of placemakers and, and all those indirectly connected to placemaking from sustainable transport planners and digital placemakers to mm. those working in community governance and engagement and, and also the Village Well team working directly on the interface of 
creating places yeah. for people. So, you know, it's a community. You know, we eat together, we connect, we, we collaborate, yeah. we, work, we inspire each other. It's, it's friendly, it's warm, there's heart. It's all these things that, um, that are important for, for me personally, but also I think for others. You know, work is more than work. It's, it's, it's livelihood. It's the whole person. It's the collective. So, yeah, Place Lab and Village Well, it's, that's our home and this place is uh, an important place. It's been, we've been working on Melbourne close to 30 years now. Wow. And hundreds of projects. And we've had our little fingerprints, you know, very subtle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> subtle fingerprints on most of the projects in Melbourne that's tweaked or created a domino effect yeah. in the background. Yeah. So, yeah, we're very... Yeah, we're very honoured and humbled by being part of that and and continue to to innovate at the edges and support others to innovate. Yeah. First of all, Village Well, such a cool name. I can see a double meaning in it. Maybe there's lots of meanings in it as well. Do you want to talk a little bit about the origins yeah. of the name and what it means yeah, to you? Yeah, of course. Well, the name was gifted to us by my dear friend Glenn Oker and Ed McKinley, who are the co-founders of... Group Work Institute, Group Work Institute yeah, and wow. Common Ground. Yeah, right. From the early eighties, one of the early intentional communities. Yeah. Set up for the social change movement, social justice movement in, mm. in Melbourne, based in Seymour. And um, we actually Village Well in its early early beginnings was called Dolphinium, which the story goes, you know, when I before when I was general manager at Chadston, just during that time I had an epiphany after swimming with wild dolphins. And the dolphin name was important about the non-humans and also I was watching a series called Millennium about Indigenous wisdom and I joined the two words, Dolphinium. Mm. And, and, uh, and, when, and really Joel was gifted to us because, you know, it, it felt Dolphinium was more the essence of the work around the non-humans and learning from how we create communities that Indigenous groups have done for thousands of years until yeah. the, you know, the very short Western uh, modernism experiment that we're in, hmm. or hopefully coming to the end. Yeah. So Glenn and I formed a company that we we're going to work together, but somehow it was a bit too clunky and too early, and she said, why don't you just use the name? And it felt appropriate to call, recall, rename ourselves Village Well back in the early 90s or mid-90s then. Yeah. And that stuck and it made sense for us, you know, around where I was born in Mauritius, the village well was part of the village in every, every place in Mauritius and yeah. the gathering place for celebration, the gathering place for the market, the gathering place for street life and meaning-making so, and villaging, the concept of villaging yeah. and obviously wellness as a, the other anchor for that. Yeah. So those two narratives uh, drive our work. Mm. Villaging, what it is to, to live in place with others. Yeah. It's, it's, I think it's part of our primal DNA. We understand that, but we've just forgotten yeah. to connect to place and with others. And then wellness, like what is, it is the wellness revolution, the wellbeing revolution that we're in, and all the century, as I say, that, that births the gifting economy. And in that container, you know, the wellness of ourselves, our communities and the planet, sort of in that order that we work in, in a way. Yeah. How do we empower individuals to work collectively 
and to raise consciousness for a new story for non-humans. Mm. I think we try to save the planet first and without reframing our individual triggers and stuff. Yeah. And we've forgotten about how to work together. Yeah. The Group Work Institute was powerful, so it makes a lot of sense to, to get our act together first so we can be collectively self-aware yeah. to do the work. So Village Well is a, a great platform as a name and also is a great platform to really build the, um, the bridge to, for our clients mm. to, to a new story. Yeah. And that's what we're really on about, how we create a new story that nourishes life. Mm. As I referred to, I... It's been 15 years in the making, this conversation. I, I did an IT degree and then did a post-grad in like RMIT in social science and urban management. And that's how I kind of got interested in placemaking and did a bit of research about what was happening in Melbourne at that time and, and came across your work. But what I wanted you to reflect on was 30 years ago when you started this and I guess the story that was common then and what you've helped those fingerprints that you've put on little projects and what you have helped emerge and what you see emerging, a bit of a timeline or a narrative over the past 30 years. Mm. Can you paint that kind of picture for us? Yeah, I think, you know, the seeds were planted early on, but, you know, in that early village world time, the seeds were planted just before that. I was working in as a store planning and design or assistant store planning and design manager at My Melbourne, understanding how consumption works. And that led me to, you know, cutting long story short, as the general manager of Chadston. Mm. And I saw, wow, this is, this is where people gather. 80% of Australians hang out in shopping centres. They live in the suburbs. Suburbs are anchored by the consumption palaces that become consumption piazzas. Yeah. We just don't have public spaces in our greenfields and... We have some main streets, but the, the engine rooms are consumption. Mm. So it, it planted the seed very early on, like, well, you know, well, is this our story for humanity? Is this what we were built to be born, have kids, work, shop and die? Mm. You know, is that a narrative? You know, it's, there's got to be something else. So, but it was good to be in that space. The seeds were planted about, you know, people wanted to hang out in shopping centres. They wanted to mm. have to be entertained and all the primal things that break bread together. That's why shopping centres are so powerful. They're very sophisticated models of distraction, I call them, to keep people lingering longer. Yeah. To spend more money. Yeah. So I think I learned a lot from that back in the early 90s. It's like Village World's broken up into three chapters. That first chapter was the early renewal of working on CBD in Melbourne and the main streets of Melbourne and our early projects was the renewal of Victoria Market mm-hmm. and all its deli halls and introducing the organic section and the food courts, strengthening a public asset. Yeah. And then um, an understanding. And the city at that time was struggling and high vacancy rates, dead laneways. Yeah. There was no concept. No outdoor eating. No outdoor eating. You know, hardly anyone was drinking. It was, you know, just after the 6 o'clock squeal that stopped in the late 80s. So it was very early days, you know, and stencil art was seen as graffiti. Mm. It was much more politicised and culture of, you know, fear, but there was a culture of possibility and experimentation because there were so many squats and empty buildings and cheap. You could buy a 
a building for $200,000, a six, seven-story heritage building in Flinders Lane. Yeah. Crazy. If you think about it now, yeah, 300,000 yeah. like, doesn't even get you. But anyway, it was for its time. So it gave us a lot of experimenting to do and that project and the activation of Flinders Lane because we were based at Ross House. So that first chapter for 10, 15 years, we were based in Ross House, which is a, an amazing building that's birthed 500 community groups and social justice, environmental and community groups. And it's, uh, it's an amazing place to actually have your business. We were in the 10% of the for-profit businesses there that made the world a better place. So we were lucky to be in that space, but had massive influence on my view of the world because, you know, working with the most vulnerable groups in society affects you, especially around your work environment, affects your view of the world around social and ecological justice, which we don't really talk about in place and Mm. in society now. Mm. So that was a great period of innovation and experimentation. And in the late 90s when we started with even going back to a shopping centre like Melbourne Central and reactivating that and putting laneways, taking the air conditioning out, putting bluestone in there and wooden finishes and a piazza and and an activated train station was a, a wild view of a shopping centre, yeah. which the client took a risk and, and it's been the most successful place because it was part, it made it part of the city. Mm. It, 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 it activated its edges and became part of the, the uh, city fabric as well as uh, that time we created back in 96, 97, we created the night markets in Melbourne. So having hung out at Confess, which is a bit of a hippie festival, gave me some thinking and also my cultural background from Mauritius and festivals and Daipusam Indian festivals, I could see, and obviously with my commercial background. Yeah. It was, gave me some street smarts to put these new products, create a new product called, you know, the Crematory Night, Summer Night Market, yeah. which we ran for a year. So I think that was a catalyst. And another, that first chapter always was also about the renewing of Sydney Road and High Street Northcote, the, the Koori Night Market creation, and also saving the Abbotsford Convent mm. back in 98, 99. Yeah. It was an enormous gig of two years of obviously non-paid volunteer, but working with hundreds of volunteers and activists to say that this is um, an important place for this generation and future generations. The concept of future generations really came into light. Because yeah. this 25 hectare site needed to be protected, and you know, as a as a cultural icon, as an ecological anchor for the city. Yeah. And so that was fantastic. And working with Sharnika and helping him to set up until as anything, just that experiment, sitting with the laneways and the activism that happened there, and setting up the first village, proper village, um, artist village that we ran for 30 days and 30 nights called The Backyard. It was part of the Fringe Festival. We're trying to activate Swanson Street, which was totally dead then, back yeah. in 98. Yeah, right. And when um, we put on 300 performances and acts for 30 days and 30 nights. Nearly killed us, but and it was a drug-infested little square. It's where CH2 building is now with Council House. Yeah. So there used to be a car park. Yeah. So just all these things really... You know, again, we did make a lot of money, but we just experimented because we could, because it was oxygen and patient capital. What I mean by that, it was cheap rent. People just said yes. There was not a lot of laws and regulations. <laughs> yeah. You know, or council would just get out of the way or we'd just 
do it anyway. We called it Illegal Acts of Love. <laughs> yeah. So that was the first chapter. And um, you're happy for me to go into the second yeah, chapter? Yeah, okay, please see. So this is great because we haven't really articulated these, this narrative. And, and all these, those particular projects were quite iconic for Melbourne, the reactivating of the spine of Swanson Street, mm. the laneways, Melbourne Central, yeah. and also the Yarra Precinct that we worked on and put the vision for that for the next 20 years, which is now, was pretty dead, no yeah. buildings back in the early 90s, and Abbotsford Convent and, and all the main streets of Melbourne, High Street, Northcote and Sydney Road, all became part of a larger... It seeded the new story for Melbourne yeah. as a livable city, I think, and yeah. obviously the city of Melbourne drove all that with Postcode 3000 and Rob Adams and his team. That's and right, yeah. Extraordinary work that they did and they've got to be congratulated. But we're in the, we're in the background, subtly just mobilising developers like Len Lee's GPT at the time for Melbourne Central and dozens of quirky operators in the laneways and mobilising the first laneway festival People forget that we did the first laneway festival in 1996. Yeah. Closed the laneway down or 97. All of these things were done with the intent because we loved our city. <laughs> and that still continues because I think it goes back to the love of place and the love of being in community and, and seeing the potential. Because we were seen as one of the worst cities in the world back in the 80s. Were we really? Yeah, yeah. we voted, I think. If you look at the Age article back in 83, it was like, name one of the three worst cities in the world or something crazy. A donut city because the likes of Chadson had Sucked in Chapel in. Street and had eaten the life out of the city. And, yeah. and people left the city at five o'clock. It was dead. No one lived there. And So I think the second chapter was really about taking that and building the place-making movement. That's when that really started back in the late 90s and early 2000s. And we were still the only place-making firm in Australia mm. or one of the one or first or many, but we started to articulate that much more. So we knew Village Well, we acted like a business, a for-profit business, but with ethics, we thought like a movement, a movement around creating a more just and sustainable world, but importantly, how do we give birth to a story that nourishes life? Yeah. Given the current story of individualism, materialism, you know, the fear of others, and the list goes on, you know, and it creates such great anxiousness for our communities. We know Hugh Mackay's latest book, Reimagining Australia, that came out a few months ago, nails it. And its core message, I have a lot of respect for Hugh Mackay, he's really our, our number one social researcher, elder. And the hundreds of thousands of Australians he interviewed basically said the future's about community, hmm. being social animals again. Yeah. That's, that's the healing lather that we need. Yeah. It's not more shopping, it's not more entertainment. It's not more travel. It's not more collection of objects. So he gets it. So underneath all that, which he doesn't really name, but is, is place, connection to place, mm. which is community. So that second phase was an extraordinary chapter that um, in Melbourne's history that we dug a little bit deeper working with dozens of main streets and regional towns like Stall and St Arnold and Ballarat and Bendigo and all these places that we started to go out and then we started working more in Sydney and then we started back in the late 90s working on the core of Adelaide, which was a 12, 15-year journey, and also Perth, those two cities, which is now the top three Australian cities and the top ten most livable cities in the world is Melbourne, Adelaide and Perth, funny enough. Wow. Yeah. Really, not to say that we were... In, you know, but we were in the background subtly planning very early on 
building capacity. You know, in the early 2000s, we created our first masterclass. We started training people. We have a copyleft strategy at Village Well. Give it away because you have to build a movement. So in some ways, it's a good tool to build our business, even though we don't make mega bucks, but it's not about that. It's building a for-profit, for-purpose company that seeds the movement. Yeah. So it's a, power, it's a courageous act because, you know, the system doesn't really allow you, you're know, trying to pay the rent and this and everything else. So that was when we started to grow from a few people to 10 staff in the early 2000s. And that second chapter in terms of, you know, working with dozens of main streets and then started to work on urban renewal projects mm. and, and uh, revitalising central Dandenong and yeah. revitalising Adelaide CBD and the Rundle Mall master plan mm. and, and then, you know, working on all the projects in Sydney, you know, Lane Cove and the Rocks and all those key sites of um, Darling Quarter, building the biggest playground in free playground in, yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> in uh, Sydney and, yeah. you know, all these things that started to seed, including Brisbane, Fortitude Valley and the importance of, uh, you know, Queen Street Mall, all those things we started to get a reputation and we, we, we started to hire some very sophisticated people at the time and very passionate that came to us. And look, seven of those people are now our competitors, our ex-staff. Yeah, right. But that's okay. That's part of the birthing the place-making movement. Yeah. We talked to them, they're good colleagues, and, you know, other groups were inspired from us, like Co-Design and um, lots of other um, Halloween. And you could see the birthing of the movement in the second chapter. Yeah. The seeds were there, even though we were still the only ones around. Mm. And in that third chapter, we really embedded place school. So we're the only ones globally really now teaching place-making skills, and, and we started to partner strongly with the MAB, Municipal Association of Victoria, to really embed place-making councils. And, and you know, it was our overseas uh, chapter where from 2006 onwards we started working in 2005 onwards for that next 12 years in Dubai and New Zealand and... You know, we're currently working in projects and training in Paris and Africa and Mauritius and mm. Osaka and Tokyo and India and the States. So all of these projects, we go, we've been going to them, doing little blitzes and really supporting our colleagues overseas to skill up hundreds of people to become placemakers. Yeah. So that's been an exciting phase we're in now. And moving into different sectors like universities, becoming places like Melbourne and ANU and Monash, our clients, and, and tourism. You know, the move towards authenticity is not, can't be marketing driven and events driven, it has to be people driven and the authentic essence of place. So, what wraps these three decades around, obviously, is our integrated approach to delivery around the five P's of placemaking that we still use. And we're starting to move into this next chapter that I made good friends with Bill Reed. Bill is an architect in the States, in Massachusetts, and is the co-founder of the LEED, Green Building Rating Tool, the first one in the world back in the mid-90s. He was quite a guru, but he left that world. He realised the world's not going to be saved by green buildings. 
It's going to be about people. And the ecosystem's a place that are regenerated. So he created, co-founded Regenesis with others and is one of the elders there. And, um, yeah, so the regenerative place-making, regenerative community is something that's been inspiring me for the last couple of years, two, three years, and I think the essence of that, foundation of that, is that we put more in it than we, than we take out. It's that simple. Yeah. So we still live in an extractive culture and economy. Everything around us still is taken from the planet. Yeah. So how do we create communities, environments, how do we give rights to non-humans and trees and waterways and how do we recreate habitats that have been decimated? But how can we live in place in buildings that are living buildings and are place-led and have a sense of conviviality and community connection? So I think that's exciting Yeah, that we can reframe our cities and our communities, our main streets, our buildings, our places. So our role at the moment is, I suppose, as a thought leader, an industry leader, is to support others, to take on a very different way of seeing the world and thinking, but also the practice, you know, having more ethical ways of design and smart city, smart design, but people-driven, not tech-driven. Yeah. So that's the key for us. So it's an exciting time for us. It's our next chapter, and uh, I'm probably moving into my eldership, which I struggle with because I just <laughs> want to be a kid. Yeah, yeah. But I think I'm called on to both give birth to this new story and to challenge the current paradigm more and more. Yeah. And to put a voice to this movement. Yeah. Which I'm happy to be of service in a humble way to do. So it's it's a pretty cool place to be meeting people like yourself and lots of others all the time. Mm. Because it's a rich palette. People, I think, we're in a tipping point where we want a new story. Yeah. And I think millennials have got it now. They've just said enough. Mm. And even grandfathers and mothers are seeing their little kids and saying, what are we leaving? Yeah. So it gives a great opportunity for, you know, designers and architects and new economics, new finance, new ways of health, new ways of exchange, new ways of building, new ways of communing Mm. to come forth. Yeah. What, so you've mentioned few things that have stood out to me there one's around well people community connection to place the work of hum it's humakai or humakai humakai yeah. humakai could be humakai I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. and they're the things that have stood out to me about what's emerging now and i guess i'm curious about how you see that starting to manifest in a place like melbourne like uh conflicting stories i guess come out from time to time how we're spending more time on screens or people are feeling more disconnected and maybe that's true but what are you seeing that's are those early sprouts I suppose of the new story yeah and that's a good question I think we're starting to see and Melbourne's a good place to to start to um, what I call you know smell the new story yeah sometimes you can see it sometimes you can feel it sometimes you can see it and they're coming out of pockets like series, mm. you know, um, Abbotsford Convent, pockets of clusters of artists in reservoir, mm. in country towns. Yeah. And you can start to see it in our cities, 
our enlightened developers giving back more than they're taking out. And I think they revolve around, you know, food security, creative food security initiatives like, I've forgotten the name of 3,000 Acres, you know, and, yeah. and the Nightingale model mm. of development that really yeah. takes a developer out and puts the partnership of a citizen and a designer together. Yeah. You start to see it in this whole concept of the return to the commons, commoning, mm. Mm. which is a, a word that's not yet in our lexicon, but it's been around for thousands of years. And that's going to be birthed through the sh- you know, that whole shareable movement, shareable cities, shareable life. Yeah. And you have extremes, what I call extreme neo-capitalist models of that, like Uber and Airbnb. Yeah. But I think um, what we're going to see is platform cooperatives. There's one in Bendigo that's just been born. Mm-hmm. That's community-owned on the platform. So, you know, community-owned taxis, community-owned mm. food systems. So mm. all the money goes back to the community and to the ecosystem, yeah. not to a small group of billionaires <laughs> yeah. controlling and eating up yeah. the market, which is a toxic model yeah. and hasn't yet been named, unfortunately. Mm. So that's pretty exciting, and I think... We're starting to see much more collaborative models of governance and partnerships. Yeah. And we're starting to see co-design being part of platforms of councils and the reclaiming of public space, yeah. re- reclaiming of streets and the renewal of public lands and parks and gardens and the simplicity movement. Hmm. People say, we don't, I don't want to work six days a week. I can manage with three. Yeah. I want to spend time with my family or kids or friends or my p- purpose, yeah. my art. Yeah. So there's thousands of, you know, the list goes on, you know, renewables and yeah. you know, green tech. And I always say green tech, it needs soft touch, the human side of green tech. Yeah. And transition towns, you know, extraordinary models of communities coming together and creating models for transitioning what Joanna Macy calls the great turning, moving from industrial growth society to a life-sustaining society. Mm. So we're right smack in the middle of that. Yeah. So all the seeds are not yet mainstream, but they're popping out. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's exciting because you watch in two or three years, a lot of these things, you would have said placemaking would become mainstream. <laughs> yeah. You would never have thought that. Never have thought that. So yeah. that's, you know, people used to look at me, well, what are you talking about? Still people do in general public, but yeah. in the professions, people get placemaking. All councils have got place managers, placemakers, place departments. Yeah. Pretty extraordinary. Yeah. So that's exciting. The, in a second, I'll get you to actually define what placemaking is in case there's people who are listening to this that don't really understand, but they probably got an idea of it already. But I think just to... Think about what you're talking about then. The 90 game model is one that I'm probably most familiar with out of all those, and I'm, oh, so I'm blown away by it, actually. The, I've been along to a few of the information sessions and how, particularly Nightingale Village, how they've got seven architects all working together mm. and they're able to design their individual spaces so that they actually mutually benefit each other as well, so creating light wells and offsetting from the street. Yeah, the principles that they're bringing in and just the amazing interest that they've got from across the board as well. I think that could be something. I, I mm. can imagine that taking off in Melbourne much more broadly quite quickly as well. I think so. And I think 
you know, there's all the elephants in the room, you know, around affordability, access, obviously food security and climate change and energy costs and the list goes on, you know, community breakdown. Yeah. And extreme, you know, black swan events that could happen, that could tip the whole city and who knows. But I think these new resilient models that can, um, you know, allow people to come together, and I call them sticky places. People know each other's names, they can hang out at each other's place afterwards, have a drink, and yeah, I know Jeremy McLeod, one of the founders, co-founders of Nightingale, you know, he says, and where he lives, he's got a Facebook page, and there's half a bottle of red, someone just Facebook who's up for a drink for the next hour, three people turn up, <laughs> yeah. you know, because usually people just put on the TV. Yeah. After work on a Friday night, yeah. you know, so oh, yeah, I'll just pop down and then. Yeah. It's that, it's that sort of conviviality, which is a real um, directive force of, of well-being. You know, that's what helps us not to get mental health issues or depression. Mm. You know, it's the food. We don't, you know, it, there's plenty of research out there. It's the places that are most convivial connected, meaningful, people know your name, they don't see you, they'll knock on your door the next day. Yeah. They'll sit down with you, hear your story, and they'll support, they've got your back. They're the healthiest places in the world, villages. Yeah. You know, they celebrate every month, there's a festival, and everyone dresses up, you know. It's expressing their, their creativity or rage or anger, it doesn't matter. It's like expression in community. Um, well, the Italians don't get high levels of depression. They, they're always eating together, yeah. celebrating, throwing tomatoes at each other. <laughs> yeah. Spanish are running from bulls or whatever. <laughs> yeah. So all of these things are, are part and parcel of um, yeah, a new story, which is really exciting. I think, especially, I think, Melbourne has the seed of any capital city, I feel, to birth this new story. Mm. You know, we are a green city. I mean, we vote... In our capital city, most of us, 54 or 50 plus percent vote green. It's the only city in the world that's got that percentage in the capital city. Mm. Extraordinary. So there's a level of appetite for progressive connection and thinking and and change. Yeah. Yeah. Something that you touched on a little while ago, I think right when we were starting, was around... um, how this is a bit of a Western modern ex- experiment that's happening in Melbourne at the moment and how uh, Indigenous Australians have been placemaking here for tens of thousands of years. I'm wondering how that plays into your work as well. And, I mean, it's been interesting noticing a couple of little changes, I suppose, around, you know, the posting of the deadly questions that has been out there for a while. Have you come across those no. where um, um, Australians can ask a question through a moderated website to Indigenous Australians and um, get an answer about anything. I think there's been topics about why a treaty is so important. You know, a whole lot of mm. questions like, are you, do you still feel Aboriginal if you don't have dark skin? Like, or mm. just, basic. I guess, yeah, yeah, basic questions, which um, for me it just signifies a bit of a, a current of something changing, but I'm interested in how that plays into your work and your conception of space and what might emerge here that integrates what is and what has been? 
as well. Yeah. Good, good, good question. The original custodians are known as the original placemakers. They're the oldest continuous wisdom on the planet. And we're the under, youngest multicultural community on the planet, which is quite interesting. And, and I think therein lies a narrative and that's really influenced us. I think I've told you about the birth of village what was influenced by Indigenous teachings. Mm. And I think they're core principles of how we can live. And there's something romantic. I think we need to live in a Western, you know, model, but a Western model with a more, I suppose, compassionate society is what really we're yearning for. And a new story that doesn't, is not based on the current story, which is very... Cartesian, you know, and Descartes and Newton, twenty years ago said, you know, separated mind and body and religion and science. We went downhill as much as we went uphill with all the great scientific discovery, which we'd never take away. But I think we we just need a rebalancing now, mm. and we need to bring the spirit back—not religion, but a spiritual narrative of values, you know, compassion and justice and care and kindness and gifting and celebration and how do all these fit in and respect how does that fit into a new story that stops this crazy story of separating yeah. nature and us and we're using nature as a as an infinite tool for our crazy consumptive behaviours and it's it's not infinite which we're starting to realise so I think what we're starting to realise is that a new story can, can be birthed, one that connects people to place, but also to a very sexy story around lifestyle. And developers use this all the time. We're going to sell lifestyle. Even, you know, Nightingale sells a, life, a new lifestyle. But in some ways they're right, and I think what we need to, to sell is we can do less with more and how much is enough. Mm. So these... Uh, you know, we dare not speak about that stuff because we need to keep GDP growing. We need to keep the wheels of capitalism. We need to give big tax cuts to the biggest banks and corporations so they can make more jobs for us to keep the wheel turning and pour in new migrants. And, you know, it's the same story globally. But I think, you know, big C capitalism has had its day. It hasn't delivered on the dream of a quality of life. It's taking us, taking more time away from our yeah. friends, our children, and it's made us more anxious. Yeah. 1% earning, grabbing more. I mean, you know, it's a story that a lot of people know, but don't understand that that context is causing a lot of our anxiousness and ills, yeah. deep ills. So we need a, a, a major um, reset and I think placemaking in its economic narrative around villaging, around the commons, around shareable cities, around what it is to live in community with less but more. Yeah. More joy, more celebration, more connection, more meaning. I mean, really, that's the, the essence and what placemaking is about creating meaningful and connected environments and places that people love. Yeah get the lovability of a place and so you know that's that's about deep democracy and service new governance models mm. that everyone you know so the future is about devolving power back to the community yeah so i think that's the exciting phase we're in 
that now in our third or fourth phase of our chapter, we're starting to see the bubbling and birthing of that. Yeah. And in, in 10 years, it's be, all be mainstream. <laughs> yeah. You know, not I put money on it. Yeah. Because we can see it happening. We've been watching it for 30 years. Yeah. And we can see the trajectory mm. back to small C capitalism, which is localism, mm. place-based economies. Of course, you're going to have globalism, a global economy. We're not going to close that off. But we're going to have strong, resilient place-based economies. And that's the surest thing to decrease an anxious community and an anxious citizenry is for them to feel part of something bigger than themselves yeah. and a story bigger than themselves, yeah. which they don't have yet. Yeah. And localism and sense of place in their communities is that really. Yeah. So it just needs to be reframed in a clever way yeah. and that will happen. Yeah. We're, um, we're running out of time and I've got two questions to wrap up so you can answer them as briefly or <laughs> as long as you want to. But the first one is about you know, what can people who are outside of the profession, what can they... What contribution can they make to placemaking? People who are listening to this, for example. So the first thing is that we are all placemakers. And um, if you can put on a party, create a garden in your backyard, say hello to your neighbours, it's creating place. It's creating safety or connection or meaning. So it's how much and, and what capacity you have to, to do more. And I think if you make it fun... That's the key to placemaking. Yeah. Keep the joy yeah. in the place. <laughs> yeah. So I always say throw a good party, a street party or, yeah. or a potluck dinner at your place or a screening of a movie or yeah. or find a little, you know, unloved little park and get council to give you the dirt and the trees and have a picnic and yeah. which we used to do or <laughs> dig up your verge. Yeah. Which we did seventeen years ago and got into trouble. <laughs> yeah. Right. And and Gardening Australia put on a show. I think we're in the top five of all shows at Gardening Australia that year, I think. Really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah so we made a verge. We put a, um, at the time, a seat. We put an almond tree. We planted it with herbs for, for the whole community. Yeah. And we said, please help yourself. And they did. And yeah. it was a seat where the old people used to sit down from the tram stop. And we made conversation. We made friends. It's extraordinary. One seat creates a community. Mm. It's just that mm. can be um, just those few things can be that simple. Yeah. Yeah, and lobby your council to beautify your your shops and mm. get involved with your trader group and then get involved. Just get involved. I think you know we're so time poor, but you know when you do, it doesn't have to mean every week. It's gonna be an hour a month. Doesn't matter. Yeah. Just connecting to place. And yeah. small, small is beautiful, you know, the low-hanging fruit. Yeah. Mm. You know, some people go radical and seed bomb and do illegal acts of love at night. We <laughs> yeah. do that, but I'm not telling everyone to do that. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> go for it, I say. Yeah. The revolution will not be advertised. <laughs> the last question I have for you is about, back to the theme of this podcast, but I guess something a little bit more about yourself and a subtle change that, or something subtle that you do. Uh, every day or that you've done in the past that's had a disproportionately important or large impact on your life? So the question is, what's had a big impact on my life? Yeah, a small thing that you've done that's had a big impact or has a big impact on who you are or what you yeah, do. Yeah, I mean, just putting that seed to my verge caused a bigger uproar in council, 
more than city council at yeah. the time because it was a legal act of love. Yeah. You know, six other virgins in, in two years were created because of that. You know, it became a, a tipping point. I think for me, saying yes to saving Abbotsford Convent, not knowing what I was going to get into, yeah. ripped me apart. You know, it nearly lost the business. But it made me because it sort of put the fire in my belly that said, okay, this is important, not just for humans, but non-humans and future generations. So it said we could do things better. Mm. And I think sometimes you need, you know, you need the fire in the belly when someone knocks on your door and suddenly you say yes and the universe (laughs) unfolds and shit happens and magic happens. And I think, um, yeah, I suppose... My parents taking me to Australia was quite a big act, leaving Mauritius, the village, and coming here and recreating home in Dandenong, which is an industrial suburb, working-class suburb in Melbourne, tough little neighbourhood, but learning to be street smart and seeing good and bad things like that, but understanding what resilience, but also what calling a spade a spade and connecting the place... um, and I suppose that first, and it was a very, went under the radar, but that first street party that we did in like mid-90s or wherever it was, and that we closed Flinders Lane to Graves. And it was like before that time people didn't understand what a laneway was. And that was the moment when the laneway revolution started. Thousands turned up for those two hours and they didn't know what, they just saw what, oh, my God, because we closed the street, we put... 100 trees of pots in there for two hours. I need to put fake grass along Flinders Lane in yeah. the graves. Yeah. We had African bands and, and South American salsa bands. We had foodies. We had all the 50 Ross House participants with social justice groups and their little tables. And suddenly we were drinking, dancing. Suddenly the city got a glimpse of what it could be. Yeah. Just in those two hours. Yeah. So that was a really important moment. Yeah. And we didn't even have the word called co-design then or, Mm. you know, we were just doing it. We were creating the movement and co-designing with others because it was just what we did. Yeah. It wasn't a profession. We didn't trick it up or anything. It's just what it is. It was raw. It was real. Mm. And we continue to do that, I think, with Village Well. It's... um, as I said, it's a humbling profession, but in some ways, the deep recognition is not through others, but through when, when I walk down the city, I just get this good feeling. I said, ah, this is good. Yeah. <laughs> you can't beat that. No. Joubert, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Pleasure. I've got a lot on it. Great discussion. Yeah, thank so you good. so much. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with me, the best way to do that is through email to adam at subtledisruptors.com. Thank you so much to the people that do send me emails. I really appreciate the encouragement. I really appreciate the guests that you suggest as well. Many of them have turned into actual guests on this show. So if you do have any suggestions, please send them through. Something else you could do if you can find the time is to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or through other platforms that you might use. It's pretty easy to do through the app or on your phone or on your laptop or computer. I hope you feel a little more encouraged, connected and resolute in your own quest to subtle disruption. And one day, I hope to hear about your subtle disruption as well. Bye for now. Bye for now.